Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. are you doing good you know what i was trying to do right there oh yeah yeah you're doing the moneymaker voice yeah he, he very often imitates squiggy from lenny and squiggy yeah. and, and Shirley there yeah yeah hello <laughs> that's, that's it i can't do it that good but that's what i was trying to do i i, I asked him it's like that sounds like lenny and squiggy said, that is dude that, that is that's that's lenny and squiggy and I go, <laughs> oh he's a character man people un- underestimate how funny he is so how are you doing my friend all right, how's it going with you? All right, it seems like I haven't spoken to you for a very long time. Like a week. Well, I mean, but on the air, certainly. I mean, because you went to Hawaii, you were doing production stuff before that. I was forced to do a couple of these interviews alone, as were you. Yeah. Yeah, which, I, you know, I mean, they're okay, but at the same time, um, you know what I tried to do? Because I had to do interviews alone, I tried to do the ones with people who perhaps weren't technologically inclined to speak on the computer. Because we record this um, over this thing called Zencaster, and it's basically a website. And you have to have your, your, your laptop or your computer hooked up with a microphone and headphones and stuff. And just some people just really can't do that. So, But gosh, it's, I, I try to take advantage of you being gone to do those sort of things to get some guests that it wouldn't, wouldn't be on otherwise. But, um, so how was your Hawaii trip in, in general? So well, it was all right. Um, I got a call from crew to all distraught that I needed to come back cause Sergio had just died. Oh no, Sergio. Yeah. Our beloved Sergio, which of course, you know, um, all of our listeners know Sergio, uh, making, you know, parakeet noises in the background incessantly on Bobo's mic. So that is in, that is Sergio, and I'm sorry to see Sergio go, but it will give better you know audio quality, whatever that's worth. Yeah, uh, we're pretty. I mean, she's crushed. I'm, I'm I'm bummed about it, but and then poor Sam Sam Kitchen, the guy from Type Four Seven One Podcast, was a guest on our show. Yeah, yeah, I'm working with on the doing the documentaries. He was house sitting for us, and he was here when it happened. He didn't do anything wrong. They, the vet did a little autopsy on him. And uh, he had his lungs full from uh, our leaky wood stove. All that smoke got to him, and he got lung cancer. Oh, oh! Well, it's, it's tragic. I'm so sorry. The passing of Sergio, or it could have been also his swollen liver because he'd been tearing up the redwood window sills, like eating them, like the last couple of months. Like just we put, well, Karita put, she duct taped and stuff, put up pads and stuff to block it and he'd still find places to chew and the vet thinks he got some toxicity in his liver from the redwood uh so he wasn't like going bar hopping or anything he was actually just tearing apart the uh the window sills he was like uh curtain rod hopping yeah <laughs> well i gotta say they look delicious <laughs> yeah but he had a good life i mean he he, he lived he, his cage door was always open he we'd leave the front door but he never flew out which was a miracle. We kind of have an enclosed, a semi-enclosed porch. So I think from his perspective, it looked like a barrier. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he had, a, and she spoiled him like crazy. So or, he was, he was a lot of entertainment. The only time I hated him was when I was on on uh, doing the podcast. Yeah, see, but you're the only one who hated him. I loved hearing Sergio in the background because I thought it was just so. It just adds so much to the ambiance. You know, this is Bobo's life. There's always a bird chirping in the background. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's just followed by a flock of birds all the time. Wherever he goes. <laughs> kind of like, like Pigpen from the Snoopy cartoon. It's, but instead of filth, it's chaos and birds, a flock of birds following you. So that's how I imagined it, at least. 
Well, people on people on this only hear me yell them shut up. But the rest of the time, that's, uh, the rest of the time, we were always cool. You know, I was, I was we we were buddies. <laughs> Did he nuzzle you? No, he was um, he was he was too traumatized. He had PTSD from his first living environment where he lived with bachelors that would come in drunk and grab him and sing to him and that sort of stuff. And so he was very shy. He wouldn't even he wouldn't even get on Corita like. Uh, she spoiled him like crazy, spent hours a day with him trying to get him to come around. He never did, but he would, he, he liked us because the, uh, she did all this reading up on parakeets and parakeet psychology and what the different things mean, like stretching his wings and puffing up and doing these like yoga poses. And it was, that meant he was like contented. So he was, he was happy just to be sitting right in the middle because he sat right on the coffee table in the middle of the living room. So he was, he was in the middle of the action and he, he loved it. And he was a rescue parakeet, actually, too. Right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I remember the day you got him, or I think we did a podcast the day you got him. You had to climb through your neighbor's window. Am I, am I remember, remember that correctly? It was like thirty degrees out, and he was in an unheated house, just sitting there by the window, like just freezing. And I was like, it had been a couple of years he'd been like that. So we, uh, I just was like, he's he's gonna because one of the his partner died of the cold in there already previous to that like a couple of months earlier so i was like man i can't i can't i just got to break in and i can't let this poor little parakeet die so i broke in and got him oh man well you're you know what i say it all the time bobo and, and i you're a hero certified yeah you really are you have a certificate to <laughs> prove it as we talked about it once on um the the bobo story time of course but yeah you're legitimately a hero and for so many other reasons than just that one time when the, the police you know gave you that certificate and it wasn't a trick to arrest you um but yeah no just another example of bobo's big heart saving the life of another animal so that's what you do i mean you save monkey yeah that's how you got monkey you saved monkey's life and I'd like to think, in a way, Monkey kind of did have some small part in saving your life. For sure, she she made me. She was such a hyper dog. She made me walk all the time to take her on walks, <laughs> like, like four miles on the beach every morning, and then again later in the day. And so, yeah, she was, she was definitely good for me. Sergio, he just brought some com- comedic relief. He was he was pretty funny. He'd come out on the table and start strutting around and like throwing stuff around and squawking and like attack any like mail that was out or any of Krita's like receipts or he'd take them and throw them off the table and strut back and forth. He was, he was pretty funny. So he had the same aversion to like, uh, like financial responsibility and taxes <laughs> that you did actually. He probably learned that from you. <laughs> yeah, he, was, he was parroting my behavior. <laughs> Parakeeting your behavior. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. That is hilarious. Well, Sergio will indeed be missed. And in fact, you know, since Sergio is gone now, why don't we do a little retrospective right now in homage to Sergio? So so you had to break into the house to save parakeets? Yeah. And so when you found the parakeet, what condition was it in? It looked pretty bummed out. Can you hear that bird? Sergio the parrot. He's, he's sitting here quiet all day, and as soon as I get on, whenever I get on the computer, he starts squawking and talking and chirping. Good thing he's cuter, I'd kill him. Sergio. We'll miss you, Sergio. Damn it, Sergio, shut up! Hey! <laughs> <laughs> chip, 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 chip. In memoriam of the greatest bird in all of podcasting, Sergio. So that's cool, man. So you've been back from Hawaii for a couple of weeks. Um, you've been keeping busy or is it just, just hanging out and enjoying the weather or what are you doing? Um, did some did some work on the dock. We're editing. We're getting we're starting the editing process, like the final editing and then we're, I just got in contact last night with a theater group up in uh, the, the foothills of the Sierras where we're going to be filming the recreations. And my buddy is uh, he—he's the sound engineer for up there this this big theater uh, playhouse, and he knows the uh, uh, like the actors and actresses. And then his wife is actually like the I think the film commissioner for their county 
for like, you know, bringing in, so she knows everybody. So it looks like we got, they were going to have no problem. And they sent me a couple of pics of some act, potential actors to play the parts of the involved parties. So that's, that was like a, that was a hurdle, like trying to get that together. Cause you know, we're already over budget. So I'm trying to do this on the, on the cheap as much as possible. <laughs> well, yeah. Just like any other production company. Right. Right. It's like I'm finding Bigfoot. We're like, no, you can't have new batteries. And so, but but we need them. No, you can't have them. So yeah. Ugh. Well, they could have. That's the difference. Oh yeah, yeah. But every penny they didn't spend is something they got to put in their own pocket, like every other production. So that's how that happens. So one of them, there are things. Did you just go to? Wait, oh, you went up to the blues. I've been, yeah, there's, I, man, I've been busy since uh, I talked to you, like really busy, and which is kind of the way I roll, apparently. I don't like it, but that's what my life is, you know? Um, I, I did, I don't know if I told you that, I told you I did that Japanese uh, documentary with Moneymaker. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Moneymaker and Dr. Sarmiento, Esteban Sarmiento, um, we all, we went up to the blues for, to make a documentary for a Japanese film company. It's not going to be shown here in America. Um, but, uh, um, you know, maybe I'll see it eventually. I kind of doubt it, but, uh, I guess they're going to overdub me with Japanese, you know, they're going to like make me speak Japanese in the, in the final cut, which will be cool. It's like when we went to China and we saw finding Bigfoot on TV in China, but we were all speaking Chinese. Yeah. And also when we were in, um, Brazil, we saw it in Portuguese. Uh, yeah, it's pretty weird to see that. Cause I said, Oh, I had no idea I was fluent. That's amazing. Remember my Portuguese voice? No, I don't. What were you like? Oh God. It was pretty bad. You know, you know, Esteban, you know, Esteban has that like kind of a higher pitch voice, like, like kind of a little nasally. He kept saying, make sure that when you dub me over in Japanese, I have a very low manly sexy voice. <laughs> 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 He's a hoot, man. Because you know how like, um, you know, like, like a uh, moneymaker, like he kind of wanders off and gets distracted sometimes during shoots. And like the production is like, Matt, get over here. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, Esteban's worse. Or just or the, or the or the same, you know. So we, they basically were herding two two kittens around, um, and it was, it was hilarious. And because he would start talking about something off topic in the middle of the scene, and it, it was so fun, so fun to do. Because it's like, oh yeah, I remember what a what a pain production was when I want to get things done. But this is great because it's <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I cast a couple prints on that one too. Well, I cast one footprint on that one, which is really neat up on Biscuit Ridge and the Blues. That was cool. Um, and uh, went back to the Blues just last week. Uh, there's been a lot of a lot of stuff happening, man. Like a lot of stuff, not necessarily sighting reports, but just projects. Um, I, I was uh, invited by uh, Michael Freeman and Doug Highcheck to participate in a book that's coming out um, this this fall at some point. Um, I, I've got I, my chapter is due at the end of the week here, so I've got a lot of work to do this week. This is um, Michael Freeman um, is, is doing something for his father's legacy there. Um, you know, the Freeman photo album, right, um, that Dr. Meldrum had. And, uh, and I guess Michael has his own photo album with a bunch of different photographs. And um, they've kind of been putting their heads together with Doug Hycheck, And they're producing like a really beautiful co uh, coffee table book. Um, featuring a lot of the photographs from the Freeman photo album from the, his research that has never that never been seen before, um, and so Michael's writing um, captions and kind of piecing together a lot of the mystery and puzzle that was left over after his father passed. Um, and he invited a number of people: myself, uh, Dr. Meldrum, um, uh, Dar Addington, and I'm missing a, another. Per oh, Tom Powell's in there because Tom knew Michael Freeman, or I mean Paul, Paul Freeman, real well. So they have this book is being produced, and because that was there. Um, I invited uh, Michael out to the museum. He's coming out to the museum on the 30th anniversary of the footage, which is August 20th. August 20th this year. It's a few weeks away now. Um, Michael will be at the museum um, talking to people and hobnobbing and, you know, that sort of thing. And then at 7 to, uh, seven to 8 or 9, we're going to go across the parking lot there to the pizza place that's in the same complex where the museum is. And we're going to do a special event up there. And Michael's going to do a one-hour presentation on um, his dad and the evidence and all that stuff. Um, by now, I mean, at the, when I'm speaking to you right now, the tickets are not publicly available. I only put them out for museum members. Museum members always get first dibs on any special events at the museum, and I give them a significant discount. But by the time this, this episode comes out... Well, frankly, by the time it comes out, I expect the event to be sold out. But if there's any tickets left, you can get them by going um, to the uh, museum store, the yeah, North American Bigfoot Center .com and go shop or whatever it is. And you can find them there. But um, yeah, it's going to be a really great event, only limited to 40 people. Only 40 people will be there maximum. 
and some uh, Bigfoot royalty will be there as well. I'm not going to tell you who, but like historic Bigfoot folks are going to come by and uh, watch the presentation and hang out that day. I am. Well, if, if you'd like to come, you, <laughs> I have a ticket waiting for you. You are welcome to come up and check them out. I was joking. I shouldn't put myself in that group. <laughs> well, you are. You know, like it or not, you're legendary. You may not like the, the legends, but the, you're legendary. Um, you are welcome to come up, though, if you want, on the 20th. Um, actually, a friend of ours from Massachusetts will be driving or, or flying in for that same event. So you, maybe you do want to come up. But um, that's happening on August 20th. That's exciting. Um, and to those ends, because of this whole Freeman surge that's going on, I am redoing some of the Freeman displays in the museum here. Somebody randomly dropped by and donated a, free, a Freeman cast I'd never seen before from 1987 to the museum. Not an original, but a first-gen copy that, was, that Paul gave her when she was much younger. Um, that's exciting. And because of all this is going on, Connor and I went to the Blue Mount, Blue, the Blues last week, the Blue Mountains last week. And um, are, we are now piecing together a recreation of the Freeman footage. Because as it turns out, I, I'm, and you've probably heard this rumor as well, Bobo, I've been asking for like literally decades, hey, how tall is the Freeman subject? Who did the recreation? And the answer has always been, no one's ever done one. You can't. The area has changed too much. Supposedly, they paved the area. Supposedly, they developed it. Um, they, they logged it. There was a fire. I've heard many, many different versions of this totally false rumor. Um, so nobody has been doing the due diligence on the Freeman film for 30 years now because of false rumors. Because I've been to the Freeman site a number of times, but I didn't. I never knew exactly where it was filmed, and that kind of bothered me. Um, but Connor, you know, my Padawan here at the, at the North American Bigfoot Center, um, he and I were looking at the footage because we got a new version of the footage, like a pretty good version of the footage, actually. Um, although supposedly there might be even a, a 4K version of the or 5K or what some K version of the footage um, being shown at this event at the museum for the first time on the 20th. We'll see if that comes through or not. But but Connor and I sat down. We're looking at the at the footage, and what we discovered is that in the uncut one, he's filming the footprints in the mud at D Duck Pond, and he never cuts the film before he actually films the Sasquatch. That's what I thought. Yeah, he never cut it. I, th I always thought there was a cut, but we sat down and really looked hard, and he never cut it. So we said, God, wherever that Sasquatch was standing is just a short distance from the pond. And I've walked that area. I never knew exactly where to look, but I've walked that area a number of times because I've been up there alone a number of times over the last 10 years, and I've, I just didn't know where to look. So now, But using the film... Connor and I went to the site and I say, well, this is the area. This is where he cast the prints. We know that because of there's photographs in the Freeman photo album that show exactly where he cast the prints. And then the, the next little past the next bush is where he filmed some footprints in the ground. And then from there, we just followed the film, the pathway of the film up the slope. We identified one of the rocks in the slope. It's still sticking out of the ground there up the slope. And then Using that frame, those you know that that thirty seconds of footage right there, we identified a number of markers that were still there to this day. Now, of course, it's been thirty years. The trees have grown. Um, the, the small tree that the thing brushes against as it walks to the to the left there, it's now it's now like forty feet tall or something like that. So we can't use that as a size comparison. But the the um, tree that it walked right in right behind. And the stump next to it, we were hoping they'd be there because stumps don't grow after they're dead, obviously. Well, somebody cut that stump for firewood rounds at some point. It's now much, much smaller than it was. But we identified several other stumps. And, and that tree, by the way, that tree is still there, the one that walks right behind. And trees don't grow up. They grow out. In other, And so the, the knots, that there are some knots visible on the tree. And some of those knots are still there. So we measured the height of this thing. Um, and, and, and of course the tree's wider than it was because, you know, every year of growth is like a new tree ring. So it grows outwards, but it doesn't grow up. Those knots would be in approximately the same position they were 30 years ago. You're saying it's immature tree. No, I don't. I know that would be projection. If I called somebody something else immature that I would really be talking about myself. It never grew up. Yeah, it's like me exactly, um, but um, but trees grow out from the from the top part or from the end of the limbs, right? So, so we we could use that tree as a size comparison. And so far, we're looking at about an animal that's about six feet tall. Now, um, you skeptics would point at it and say, "Well, that's just somebody in a suit." But the Patterson Gimlin film subject is only about six six and a half feet tall, and the Patterson Gimlin film subject has feet that are about an inch longer than the animal that um, is, that Paul filmed. 
So it might be a little shorter. So it's kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting. So I, we went out there for three nights and did some uh, recreation stuff, took a ton of measurements, probably more than we need, but too much is always better than not enough, as the subgenius say. And then uh, we camped at another place, another spring down the road. We cast a footprint. We cast a really, yeah, it cast a really interesting, it was an 11-inch footprint, and it was, but it was extraordinarily wide. Very unusual print. I mean, maybe it's human or something, but it was in super saturated soil, not far from camp, in, in actually in, in the riverbed. Um, there were no other prints. There was one in the middle of a riverbed that was about eight feet or more wide. So something looks like something jumped there and then jumped to the other side, barefoot. Um, you could see the toes clearly. Um, the, the mud extrude, extruded up, extruded up, that's the word, extruded up in between the toes and a very wide heel and a really uh, even wider ball, 11 inches long, which is really interesting because there's a, there's a lack of footprints in that size range in the data set, um, that nine to 13 inch range. Um, we have very, very few Sasquatch prints. If that's even what this is, maybe it's human, but I mean, you know me, if, if there's any doubt, I'm going to cast it just to make sure. So we're still kind of pondering that. I haven't shown it to Dr. Meldrum yet, um, but you know, I, I'll do that eventually and get his two cents. And you know, but anyway, great trip, a lot of fun. Uh, Dar Addington came out with us. She came out to Deduck Springs with us. Um, at legendary Dar Addington, who casts all those footprints in '94 and '91 and '92 as well. Uh, kind of one of the unsung heroes of the blues. Yeah, man. So there's been a lot of Paul Freeman stuff going on. Lots of Paul Freeman stuff. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso, and Satellites and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. Why don't we jump into the Q&As and then we can start doing that. Hi, Cliff. Hey, Bobo. Longtime fan of the show and the podcast. Bobo, I think you're related to my buddy, uh, Ken, because you guys have the same mannerisms. But here's my question. Who do you think will win in a fight? A Wisconsin dogman, a.k.a. the Beast of Bray Road, or our North Pacific uh, Sasquatch? It might be a fun idea to try that, but give it an idea. And you guys keep up the good work. Keep up a good show. You guys are awesome. Have a good day. You know what's funny is uh, I listen to a bunch of different podcasts, you know, like not consistently, but I mean, I'll, I'll tune in and check them out. Especially that I spent a lot of time digging into the do- dogman phenomena. And there's actually people that say that they fight each other, like the Bigfoots are the good guys and the dogmen are the bad guys. And that they're like, it's a spiritual war of these supernatural beings. And other people say uh, the opposite. And then other people say they work together, uh, they're seen together. It's kind of like a Midwestern version of like Twilight. I never saw that. I haven't either, but I had vampires versus werewolves or something. Oh, is that what it was? I think so. I think so. Okay. And yeah, maybe that's where they got it from. But uh, I'd have to say the Bigfoot I saw down in Louisiana was so big. I think even though the dogman sounds ferocious, I think that uh, a Sasquatch that big could just pulverize it. It would imagine it kind of reminds me of like that scene in King Kong, you know, the original one where he rips open the dinosaur's jaw. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. I think if you took an equal-sized Sasquatch and an equal-sized Dogman, the Dogman would take them because they got claws and they got way gnarlier mouth and teeth. Yeah, I mean, as far as like uh, physical attributes and stuff, I think they might be equally matched. I mean, I would say Bigfoot would win because at least they're real. <laughs> Fighting words. But um, but at the same time, you know, of course, you know, there's something weird going on with the Dogman thing. I just don't think they're real physical things you know but then again you know if they're actually weird paranormal whatevers i mean does that mean they can cast spells and do cool stuff like that i mean that would give them a serious advantage i've never heard that 
Yeah, I don't know. I've never heard much of anything. So I don't know what to think of the dog man thing. It's kind of a weird question to me. But I, I like the question. It's not a bad question, but it's a weird one because I don't know because I'm on record as saying there's something up with Dogman because a couple of people I know and trust have seen them. I just don't think they're physical things that are like part of the ecology. They're not naturally evolved like a Sasquatch. Yeah, and if you're not part of the ecology, if you're not actually part of the the natural landscape, doesn't that give you an edge in some ways? Mm, I think so. I don't know. We may have to call John Tenney and ask. (laughs) (laughs) He's straightened us out. Yeah, yeah, and I trust anything that guy says. Me too. Yeah, as much as I would trust anything. Uh, don't don't believe your lying eyes or ears. Right. <laughs> well, Aaron, I hope that answered your question to some degree. I, I don't feel it did, but maybe it did. But thanks for the question. We do appreciate the kind words as well. Hello, bodacious Bobo and charismatic Cliff. I love finding Bigfoot and the podcast. My husband and I are really excited for the project Bobo is working on too can't wait to see it. My question is, if you could take only one of these pieces of technology with you on an expedition, which would you bring? Trail cams, a parabolic mic, or a flare camera with recording capabilities? Thanks so much to you both. I think that's a pretty easy one to answer because we ring flare every time or thermal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't like parabolics. I don't use them. If I can help it, I don't use them. I love them. Do you? Do you see, it's just not my thing. Why do you, why do you like them? Because I've just heard really good stuff through them and just magnified so well. But, I mean, going in a group, they suck. Like when you're filming with, and you get with a group of five people, then, you know, and especially when there's dry leaves on the ground, it'll blow your ears out and drive you crazy. But if, you can be, if you're in a quiet spot, and also back on the – when we're in the Midwest, the East Coast, you get the cicadas and everything going. It's, it's so loud. But out here in the Pacific Northwest – um, it's pretty cool, especially like after midnight when the mosquitoes are gone. Because when the mosquitoes fly, you're just hearing. Yeah. No. What about what about trail cameras? Would you bring one of those at all? Or I mean, yeah. I mean, they'd be fine to put. Around. Yeah, I don't mind them being around camp and stuff. Yeah. I just I just don't mess with them anymore. Yeah. Trail cameras to me are something that I put on the bumper of my car when I go to bed, or in the middle. Uh, if I have a table or something, like I bring a little foldable foldable table out with me sometimes. I, I'll put it there in the midst of all my other human things, you know, facing outwards. Cause people are always saying Bigfoots are wandering through the camp and whatever else. Very few people have anything to show for that, but that's what they say. And just in case they're right, I do put a trail camera or two or three facing outwards from the middle of my camp, just in case one does decide to come in. Um, but still that's not my number one thing. Uh, um, and audio is not my number one thing either, even though I almost always have it running, but not parabolics, man. Cause you may have a superpower in one very specific direction, but you don't know what direction they're going to call from. So that's why I don't like it because of the unpredictability of the Bigfoots themselves, but FLIRs, I love to have a FLIR with me because if, without a FLIR, you think that the forest is full of, of things that are scary or, you know, got to get you or moving around. And then you have a FLIR and you realize, oh, wow, the forest is like the ocean. It's mostly empty. See, my goal is to see a Sasquatch and you can't see a Sasquatch with a parabolic mic, but you can see one with a FLIR and a trail camera too. But gosh, trail cameras cover such a small zone. I think you'd have a much higher chance of seeing one if one's around by using a FLIR. So that, that'd be my choice. FLIR is my option. But, you know, um, uh, Alyssa, I have to congratulate you on your alliteration. Bodacious Bobo and um, Charismatic Cliff, I love it. And, frankly, a, a part of me, at least a small part of me, would rather be charismatic than bodacious. Not me. I know. We, got, we, all, we both won. Everybody won. <laughs> Thank you, Alyssa, for uh, caring about our feelings and individuality. Thank you. Hi, Cliff and Bobo. Darren from Wisconsin. Love the show. Say, I've always been curious, after all the years of analyzing a debate on the Patterson-Gimlin film, I think the only thing that's truly debatable is why was Patty startled in a clearing when two researchers were approaching on horseback? To me, the only thing that makes sense is the fact that they were on horseback and Patty heard quadrupeds approaching And could that be the surprise factor to her that she was expecting some sort of quadruped and out pop two humans? Just wondering on your perspective. I think it's a combination of that and the wind was in their favor. You know, they said it was a pretty good breeze. And I've been out there plenty of times. You know, it it can get pretty windy in there. 
you know, like a not windy, but strong breeze. I think that and the water sounds. And I think she was also focused. She was like only 50 feet from the road. I think she was waiting for logging trucks to come by or crummies, you know. And I think it was those three things combined and four things combined. Well, and also, if if I remember correctly, she was kneeling or not kneeling. She was squatting down in the river at the time doing something in the water. When they came around that big root root ball, that kind of blocked the view. She couldn't see them coming either. She was back behind this root ball, you know, squatting down in the water, doing something, you know. And Sasquatches, you know, they're they're just they're just people, I guess, in this weird sort of not people sort of way. They're, they're, the focus was elsewhere, doing something else. I mean, I've been to the site a bunch of times. You have too, Bobo. I know. Um, there's some stuff in the water. If they're, they're digging through uh, the water flipping over rocks, looking for those salamanders or various insects that live in the water there. Probably focused on that at the time. And, you know, they, they make mistakes. They make mistakes. And the road, the road was right behind her. Yeah, yeah, the road was right, right over there. So um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, those seem like reasonable reasons to have her attention somewhere else to me. Yeah, because we know that their hearing is their probably super attribute of, besides their speed. She was obviously distracted and the wind, you know, she didn't, she couldn't smell them coming and the wind's blowing the noise that way. It just, I think it all added up that, you know, and the, the sound of the water and she, I'm sure her attention was on the road. And if she did hear them, she would have heard, you know, quadrupedal sound, which I think would have got her. T- I, I think she, I just don't think she really heard them because I don't think she heard quadrupeds and then thought no big deal because I think that would have got her, you know, alert, you know, f- to grab a meal or whatever. Yeah, and you know there there are a lot of people see Sasquatches while on a horseback, and I've even heard um, heard somebody say I'm not I'm not a horse person, and maybe you can verify this, Bobes. I know you have a lot of experience with horses. Um, from what I understand, when you're on horseback, you see a lot more animals to begin with. Not only because you're at an elevated position, but again, you're on top of another quadruped of some sort, and some I guess for some reason that doesn't scare the other animals so much. I haven't done that much horseback riding, but. And when I have, it hasn't been places that I was really familiar with the wildlife where I could make a comparison, you know, like a, a knowledgeable comparison of what I saw on foot versus the horse. Yeah, but the people, uh, I guess the people that I've spoken to have seen Sasquatches from horseback say that they see a lot of animals. And I guess maybe that's what leads me to believe that uh, people who are on horseback probably see more animals. I know that you do see more animals while driving um, than you do while walking or while on ATVs and that sort of thing. And they're loud. They're loud. But uh, horsebacks aren't, you know, horse, horses aren't loud. Yeah. I mean, the horsemen and women I know uh, also, they do see more animals on when they're riding. Yeah. We should ask a centaur. <laughs> I've got two eyewitnesses to centaurs. <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot about that. It's great. Oh. Uh, Okay, well, anyway, let's go to the next question instead of talking about centaurs for the next half hour, which I'm really <laughs> fully capable of doing, by the way. But um, we'll save that for the special centaur episode coming up in uh, September. Um, okay, this next question looks like it's from Dave. Here we go. Good afternoon, gang. This is little Dave again from L.A. That was lower Alabama. I would like to help promote this voicemail feature by being the first person to be on there twice. My question for y'all is, I went to the Expedition Bigfoot in Georgia and saw a hand cast there. Really interesting. I was wondering, Cliff, if you measured the hand in the Stacy Brown FLIR footage, because it looked like a catcher's mitt when he stepped across there. And I know you made multiple dimensions of that subject. I'm just curious, did you measure the diameter of the hand, and how does it compare to other hand casts? Thank you very much, guys. I love the show. Yeah, that, that's what struck me about that video was the hand. The, the hand was so huge. Like they always talk about like, like a canoe paddle with a scoop in it, and that's what that one looks like. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have not measured specifically the hand. It was hard enough to get a, a general measurement of the size of the animal itself. Um, and if you're if people who want to check out what I've done on this, um, I wrote a pretty lengthy article and did a lot of analysis on the the Stacy Brown Senior um, uh, thermal footage. And of course, Stacy Brown Junior is still around. Uh, Br- Senior unfortunately died a few years ago, but Junior's still kicking, and um, he had, controls the film now. And he's he's a friend of the show. He's been on the show here. He's got a lot of things going on. Um, but uh, 
I only measured the height of the figure itself, and I, I got a range of heights to, because there's some ambiguity there. There's some variables that I didn't know. So I kind of went for the what, how short could it be, how tall could it be, and assumed that the truth is probably in the middle somewhere. And so if you want to read that article, you can go to my website, which is not the museum website. It's a different entity. Um, you can go to cliffberrickman.com, and it's probably in, in – I don't know how I label it. It's probably under either research or articles or something like that. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff in there. I want to check out anyway, including a track database that doesn't exist anywhere else. So um, go read that and you can kind of see what I did. But I didn't calculate the size or width of the hand itself. Um, I guess I could. Um, it would just be a matter of percentage of actual height. Um, it wouldn't be that hard to do, but I never actually did do that. I got a new project, Cliff. I guess I have another project as if I needed another. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks, Dave, from L.A., our second two-time questioner. You've given me more work to do. You've taken away more of my free time. But love you anyway. So I appreciate I appreciate that. But I've not done that. I guess I could do that. But that one handprint in the Expedition Bigfoot um, Museum down there in Georgia, um, which is a fantastic museum, by the way, it is the Big Freeman one. That was discovered in 1986. There's two of them from that particular event. Um, I only have copies of one. I have the one that's on it on display there. Although I'm working on getting the other hand. Turn, apparently both hands were cast. Um, I don't have a lot of information about the circumstances of that, but that, that might be one of the things that is the side product, I guess, of this Freeman book stuff. Because Michael and I and Dr. Meldrum and Doug Hycheck and whoever else, we're all kind of pooling our resources here. Um, not monetary, of course, because we don't have that, but um, our, our knowledge resources and trying to figure out where did these things come from? We're trying to piece together the mystery that was left behind when Paul checked out because we didn't ha- we don't have a lot of the information. Like, where was where were those casts? Um, of course, I have the Freeman map. That sure helps a lot. That's hanging up here in the museum. Um, but we're trying to piece that sort of mystery together. The other hand, by the way, is also equally huge. It's nuts. It is by far the largest handprint on record so far. Um, and then comes Goliath from Kentucky. And then we have a smattering of other handprints that are all about the same size, about seven inches across the palm, both from Kentucky, the Tom Shea collection, and the Freeman collection. Um, really interesting stuff. Oh, and there's also that handprint from Missouri, too, um, which is a really interesting uh, specimen because it has dramatic lithics all over it. Yeah, the handprint stuff, I really dig the handprint stuff. It's so cool, so cool. So anyway, there's that. So I, I'm afraid I don't have a good answer for you, Dave. Um, it looks big to me. It looks big in proportion to the body to me, too. And Krantz kind of uh, speculated in his book that perhaps um, a, a similar gene or the same gene even um, controls the size of the hands and feet, you know, which is why partially why their hands might be so big. But who knows? Who knows? I don't really know. So I wish I had a better answer for you. Okay, next question. Hi, my name's Lee. And my name's James. And we're from Ireland. Our question is, how come Sasquatches don't use spears or anything like that? Because they have the hands to use them and they're obviously smart enough. And by using like spears, they'd be putting themselves in much less risk of getting themselves injured. I like Sasquatches. Thanks. I like you guys. Right on. I like Sasquatches. No truer statement has ever been uttered. That's cool. I think the quick, easy answer to that is the reason they don't use them is they don't really need them, but they do use rocks. I, I know that they'll use rocks to stun prey or kill, you know, birds up in trees or whatever, throw, throw them at raccoons up in trees, whatever's up in trees, they'll throw rocks at them sometimes. And break open shells and nuts too. Yeah, so they'll, they'll, they will use a tool like that, but I, I think they just don't really need the – I mean, they've been clocked sprinting at 55 miles an hour. So, I mean, I don't think they really need to – they don't really need a spear. Yeah, and I would speculate it has something to do with their brain capacity as well. It's like how far they can plan ahead um, because, you know, a stick just doesn't cut it as a spear, right? You have to sharpen that. And to sharpen that, you need another tool. You need some sort of stone or, you know, blade of some sort. And yeah, um, a posable thumb would help. That helps. That helps. They might be able to pull it off otherwise, but th- that would help them. But um, you would have to sharpen the stick or at least fasten some sort of pointy rock on the end, like some sort of blade. And I don't I don't think they have the the, the, the intelligence and foresight for that. I really don't. Because that's a very, very specific thing, you know, very specifically human thing. 
that was done by Homo habilis and later on. There's some evidence that the Australopithecines did this as well, but it's much much more shaky evidence, I would say. Um, but Homo habilis is where we're talking, where this this really starts gaining some speed. And I just don't think the Sasquatches are smart enough. You know, but you know me, I, I mean, people think that they're way smarter than we ever will be. Um, and I, I know the reasoning and Bob's, I know your reasoning. They don't have jobs and don't pay taxes. They're clearly smarter than us. But I just don't think they have the, that sort of uh, cognition to figure out how to do that, how to make these elution points or whatever that sort of uh, technology is. Um, so that, that's my take on it. They, I, but again, I think it comes back to what you said, Bob's. They don't need it. They just don't need it. Everything they need, they already have. Same reason they don't have a material culture of any significant sort is that uh, they don't need it. Wherever they go, they're at home. True that. That's my take on it. But we both appreciate Lee and James for listening. Super stoked that you like Bigfoots. We do too. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Really appreciate it. Aaron Gobra. <laughs> All right. This question here, um, and I think this is our last verbal one, our last recording one. Um, it's from Kevin. Let's see what Kevin wants to know. Hey, Cliff and Bobo. This is Kevin from Bowling Green, Kentucky. My question is, what would be a good entry-level night vision thermal uh, monocular or some uh, viewer of such to purchase for going on night expeditions? Thanks. Well, uh, we got those ones. We got a couple of those those new ones that the guys from the BFRO, uh, Damian Pfeiffer, out of Ohio, he sells them for for right around a grand. Yeah, we have them at the museum. Actually, you can buy them directly from the museum. Uh, we don't make much. I mean, they cost a thousand bucks. Nine hundred ninety-five is what we, we price ours at, um, and, and there's not much profit on there. You know, it's just a, it's like a, uh, a symbolic profit, if you will. We're not making a lot of money on these. They cost just a little bit less than nine ninety-five. So you can buy them directly from the BFRO website. Um, you can buy them directly from the North American Bigfoot Center. Um, we don't have them online, but if you call us, we can hook you up with them. And they're actually really good. Moneymaker brought his out on the that Japanese film shoot that I was mentioning earlier in our in our long rant there. Um, and it's this fantastic thermal. I mean, I've got one of these FLIR Scions, they're called, and um, they're excellent units. But I paid like four grand, I think, for mine. And Matt paid a thousand bucks, and the difference is negligible. It's pretty interesting how, how far technology has come. You know, there's a, there's another company I'm interested in. Um, so, uh, some folks were in the museum a couple weeks ago. They'd been out of Bluff Creek for a little while and poking around and stuff. And they brought in the therm that they were using. It's, it's by a company called Taipan, T-A-I-P-A-N. Um, and they sell these thermal imaging monoculars that are, uh, record internally. And I, I, I just used this guy as whoever, uh, whoever it was that shared this with me, um, and looked around and it looked really good. And apparently these are much, these are even less expensive than the other ones. Now I haven't been able to track down a wholesaler cause I'd like to, um, have a couple of these in the museum as well in our gift store. Um, but I've not been able to find the wholesaler so far, but you can find these online. I don't know the specs. I don't know. I haven't tried them in the field. These guys said it worked really well and they were happy with it. So there's another company, Taipan, that you might want to look into. And the model, I took a picture of the, the unit so I could find it later. The model this guy had is a TM10-256. Um, so look that up and see which ones are better or worse and how much they cost. Maybe that's a good avenue. But yeah, I think thermals are a really great tool. And as you heard by our earlier question, they're what we choose to bring if we could bring one piece of technology with us. So... Go, go shop around. Let us know what you like, you know? Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Well, Scott Peterson wants to know, have you been contacted by government officials telling you something like, you're getting too close to finding Bigfoot. Once they're discovered, your research is over. No. No. Not at all. And you think if anybody would be, it'd be us or Moneymaker or somebody like that, right? Uh, or the would it guys? Yeah, I, I don't. I just don't think that stuff's there. You know, if there's any conspiracy at all, it's just a conspiracy of not caring enough to do anything about it. I don't think they're that worried about us finding them. <laughs> no, they probably look at us and go, "Those guys are buffoons." Yeah, you know? <laughs> I think a lot of people do that, not just the government. <laughs> yeah, a lot of our listeners probably too. So, <laughs> um, now, yeah, but that, I don't know. I know a couple of people said that their house has been gone through and whatever. And I just, I, I don't, I'm not so sure I believe it, honestly, you know? 
Well, my house got broken into when I, I thought I had footage. I told you that story a bunch of times, but yeah, but you live in Humboldt, man. I mean, yeah, they, they didn't like steal, all they stole was my Bigfoot stuff, like a couple casts, um, photos, and all my videotape that said Bigfoot on it, like or you know, it was labeled for that. All that was gone. They blew it, man. You have treasures in your house, and Bigfoot stuff isn't it. Yeah, they they didn't take anything of value. Dude. Just all my Bigfoot stuff, like and my notebooks with notes in them, and. Uh, what I heard, what I heard of the, back then was well, a, a few years after that was that when the Earth First and Earth Liberation Front and all that was fighting in the redwoods down here with the logging companies about logging the last of the old growth. Oh, when those purported tree spiking incidences were going on, and the, they're getting their logging equipment vandalized at night. They hired some ex like federal agents, I guess, to do security for them, and they were like monitoring these groups and doing. I guess illegal wiretaps was the word. And so there was some conjecture that maybe that those guys uh, started doing the Bigfoot thing, like trying to keep the Bigfoot thing under wraps to preserve their jobs. I don't know. That's kind of sounds a little more Art Bell style or something kind of conspiracy theory. But yeah, I still never figured out. And then there was someone up there, uh, someone up in Oregon, part of that crew, like uh, Joe Bielard. Uh, someone that knew Joe Bielard, something like that, like within the same 48-hour period had their house broken into and Bigfoot stuff stolen. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm not just not sure I believe any of that stuff, you know? It's just... Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I, but I did have a buddy tell me that they did hire um, some ex-federal agents to do, uh, you know, to monitor like Earth First and Earth Liberation Front and that they... Uh, they were definitely, they did stuff like illegal wiretaps and that sort of thing. Oh, I believe that, you know, I believe that, like, I don't think the government cares at all about our, uh, you know, privacy or anything. If you, if you own a computer, you've already signed away all your rights pretty much because no one reads all that. Hey, read this and install the software. It's like, click, I read it. I accept it. Done. You know, if you're on Facebook, that boat has already sailed. They know if they want to know something about you, they already do. The whole trick is to be uninteresting. And I don't think they find the Bigfoot thing interesting because, you know, none of us are getting very far. No one has got very far so far. Right. We're not much to worry about. The Bigfoot seem to be doing a really good job taking care of themselves. But that's that's just me. That's just me. I'm paranoid about other things. Like, is my zipper down while I'm on stage? Yeah, that's the stuff that I worry about. I'm not worried about the government caring what I'm up to because I'm not really up to anything. Well, whoever, I mean, it's not going to be any of us that solve it anyways. It's going to be just some random guy that happens to hit one or shoot one or something, you know, like just not a big footer. Yeah, yeah, almost certainly because the odds are in their favor, statistically speaking. Huh. All right, well, the next question from Jenny Payton, I'm guessing. Uh, Patton, but Payton is my guest. Jenny asks, Hey guys, can't get enough of your podcast. I was wondering how strong you think Bigfoots are. How much do you think they could bench press? Do you think they are strong enough to have pulled up trees and shoved them upside down in the ground like has been found in Canada? And Alaska. Yeah, super strong is the answer. Very, very, very strong. I mean, look how big they are. They've got to be just ridiculously strong. Um, But I don't think they're responsible for those upside down trees. I think bored loggers are. Well, those ones we saw in Alaska... I think some of those, we, we saw the ones that were the loggers did, but then there was those other ones that were out where there had never been any logging. And there was no, like, because there were still, I mean, the trees that were there were so old around them. I don't see how that could have been done any other way. I don't see how a Bigfoot would have done, or could have, or would have done that. I just don't, I just don't see it, you know? Like, I, 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 how much pressure it would take to shove a blunt object into the ground? Well, it was marsh. Well, and still, even then, like, why would they do something like that? Why would they expend so many calories to do this thing? And and to say, oh, it's a marker or a ter- territorial thing or a communication thing, then why don't we find it all over the place? Right. I'm not saying they for sure do it, but it, it's they, I think the big males are capable of it. The really big males, like the gargantuan ones, they could probably probably do something like that. On I mean, not not true. These were like you know dead old snags that that it happened to. Yeah. Well, I'm no fun. You know how I am, Bobes. I am no fun at all. And uh, I just figure, like, uh, if they do this, why haven't there? Why hasn't there been a sighting report of it? Why? Ha- why is it that they're so rare and hardly ever found? Um, why would they do it to begin with? What did they get out of it? But I have seen. I've seen. I've seen branches like, uh, 
you know, like three to five inches thick, shoved into the ground, making an X over trail. Yeah. See, I've never even seen anything really compelling there. I've seen some tree breaks, um, uh, twisted branches and all that sort of stuff. And, and then small, delicate things that I can't figure out how it would have been done. But at least I had a connection to Sasquatch. I mean, there were prints nearby. There were footprints 20 yards or 20, eh, 20, 15, 20 yards away from where I found these things. And there have been numerous casts taken at this one location. Um, I actually collected the, the, the boughs of this particular tree and they're in the museum. But for the most part, the logic I hear, and this goes the same for stick structures too, the logic that I hear that connects it to Bigfoot is, what else could it be? And, you know, that's not good enough for me, and I don't think it should be good enough for any Bigfoot researcher, really. Well, they do do stick structures, Cliff. Well, I'm, maybe they do. I don't know. I'm way open to being convinced, but yet no one has convinced me yet. Tom Shea says they do, and I completely trust Tom Shea. At the, and, and also, Bobo, just so you know, I completely trust you as well. But I have yet to be convinced because it has yet to be demonstrated, in my opinion. Right. As far as strength goes, uh, I mean, we have so many new, you know, for our longtime listeners, you got to excuse us because we're going to repeat some stuff because we have so many new listeners. Like, I mean, we've, what we've grown like triple this year or something like that. In my waist size. <laughs> so for our longtime listeners, you're going to have heard this before. So bear with us on some of this stuff, but you love us. Just stick with us. You know, everything's cool. Back in the early 60s, between 61 and 63, out near Hyampom, there was a couple of Yurok brothers that was good friends with a buddy of mine, an older guy, and he distinctly remembers them talking about it, how they came to work one morning as they drove up in their crummy. It was, uh, they went up there, it was, they took a break for uh, Thanksgiving, and it was the Monday after Thanksgiving, and they were going up to shut down the uh, because it was getting too much snow and stuff. There was snow on the ground, and they were they were shutting down for the winter. There was a big logging site, and they had built like a, a cabin workshed type thing where they kept all their tools and, you know, valuables locked up in there. And those, they were driving, they saw these huge footprints. There was three sets of tracks, 21, 19, and like 16, 17, somewhere around there. So it appeared to be three big males or two big two very big males and one huge female whatever it may be and they came around and they went around and they threw off the 55 gallon fuel drums full full of fuel chucked them off the hill through you know loader tires which i don't even know how much those things weigh hundreds and hundreds of pounds through those where they didn't touch the ground for like 100 feet and then um actually uh, they uh vandalized some of the equipment and, and uh, broke snap stuff off and the fittings for like the hydraulic lines and stuff they actually were those are welded into the the cat they actually snapped that off and this was a fifty thousand pound caterpillar uh, dozer and all three tracks came together on one side of it and the, their their tracks sank way deep in like deeper than all the other walking around tracks just sank way deeper and they actually tilted over and dumped on its side a fifty thousand pound caterpillar tractor cliff you could figure that out like because the the fulcrum point of the outside track where it, where it tipped over I mean, they didn't lift fifty thousand pounds but i wonder what it what it would take to tilt you know to lift one side up and tilt it on its side i don't know you know what i'm gonna leave because certainly some engineer listens to this show right certainly some engineer figure that out for us and uh, send us an email because that doesn't sound like fun to me i could probably do it with a little bit of help but for somebody that's fun Let's have them fill, figure it out and let us know. We know we got some nerds listening out there. Get to it, guys. There are no nerds listening to Well, actually, we're all nerds <laughs> listening to them. Obviously, our, our listenership is above average. So, anyway. Well, okay, let's go to the next question. Um, yeah, I don't even, I'm not sure we actually answered that question very well, but that's what you get. So, um, thank you, Jenny. Okay, Bobes, you're, you're, you, you get to read the next question here. Go ahead. All right. This is from Cat Moody. I see the World Athletic Championships are in Oregon. What events would Bigfoot be good at? Um, I think that's track stuff. Is, is that the one with track and then like cornhole and stuff like that too? I don't know if they have cornhole in this. I um I know what's going on because Dan per- Daniel Perez actually uh, came up to watch it. He's a huge track and field um, aficionado who goes to all the um, Olympics, et cetera. And he was up here and dropped by the museum yesterday. 
Um, it was nice. We had uh, Daniel Perez and Larry Lund and Joe Bielart and Bob and Patty Reinhold up here at the museum yesterday. So it was, an, it was a great day of visiting and stuff. But um, I think that uh, this is like a precursor to the Olympics. Like, I don't think it's like a tryout thing, but whoever kind of wins here is generally favored for the Olympics. I just looked it up. It's it's track and field, and they would shatter every record by wouldn't even be close on anything. They would just just you couldn't even compare it to humans. They would just they'd throw the discus three hundred feet stuff like that. They might be disqualified from pole vaulting because they wouldn't use the pole. Right. They could literally jump probably almost as high as the world record pole vaulter. Maybe not that high, but getting up there. Oh yeah, fifth. I think fifteen twenty feet straight up, pretty 22, much. Twenty two. Yeah, they can. Do, and the pole vault record, I think, is twenty two something. Yeah, and then of course, like a long jump. Forget about it. You know, yeah, it's just off the charts. Well, I, got, I got a good stat for that because the the dude measured out. Again, long time listeners have heard this plenty of times, but when I was on the Hickory Pack, uh, when I was on the Hickory Patch Reservation back in two thousand four, where I had that great sighting. Uh, we were with Hoyt Velarde, and he was, you know, ex-director of all law enforcement for the tribe out there. And we met up with this guy who was a sergeant when he was a patrolman. He went out to this guy. It was like one of the most remote living guys on the on the res. This was, I think he said 76 or 77, 78, somewhere in there. But he went to a call out there, and the guy had built a custom, like a smoker, meat shed kind of situation, and he he uh, put because he said the Sasquatch kept stealing his stuff. It would just tear down his smokehouse and um, his meat cooler and all that. So he built it out of cinder blocks with filled cement with rebar reinforcement through it. And then for the door, he'd welded a custom mount. And I guess the guy was pretty handy, like construction guy. And he welded a custom door that had big metal straps, like a like an old medieval castle or fortress door. And had you know stainless steel straps, and the it was actually made out of railroad ties. Was the wood that was the actual door components was wood with stainless steel straps holding it all together, and you know just super huge thick metal uh, hinges. And when the and when the when the cop went out there, he said he put his spotlight on it, and as he as he put his spotlight on it, he came pulling up. Out of the doorway ducked this huge eight eight and a half foot male Sasquatch. You know, he said it had to turn sideways to come through the doorway, and and duck. It had, and it was a oversized doorway. It wasn't like a standard door. It was custom built. It was it was huge. And it came. The guy had shot uh, about a six hundred fifty pound cow elk uh, that day, and the Sasquatch came out with it, screamed at the cop. Through, stepped out through the elk over its shoulder. I mean, you know, it had been it had been gutted and all that. Through the through the elk over his shoulder, started sprinting and ran down towards the arroyo. Didn't go down in the arroyo. It did a. The guy said it looked like an Olympic athlete. He said it did the perfect hurdler jump and long jumped over the cleared the arroyo. And I think the world record long jump is twenty six feet nine inches, something like that. And that, you know, that was a human, obviously. Well, this thing jumped from where it took off into where it landed, carrying this, you know, 500 pounds of meat over its shoulder, was 32 feet. Ah, I think that uh, there should be some sort of event where you have to carry a dead elk carcass on your shoulders. (laughs) I guess there's some guys that could do it. The mountain. It'd be like a world's strongest man competition. Yeah, those guys. That dude that was in Game of Thrones, a six foot, 10, 430 pound world's strongest man guy he could he could probably do it he played the mountain yeah yeah that yeah that guy he's i love that competition by the way i watch him oh it's so funny to me just love it well, yeah so once again i'm not so sure we answered that question but we tried <laughs> I, forgot, I forgot the question yeah I, I, hopefully our listeners did as well okay you want to take the next one bobs we have two more yeah martin kevel or kevel I often wonder about what photos and videos out there are truly the real deal or hoaxes. But if there's one place I think the real deal would be, it's the dark web. It's an untapped well, I say. What do you think? No, people want, they want if they're doing a hoax, they want everyone to see it. And if it's the real deal, they want everyone to see it. So it'd be on the, whatever, the light web. <laughs> web light. Um, 
Yeah, less calories, no carbs. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, the dark web seems like a pretty shady place to me. I don't go lurking around down there. Um, you know, troglodytes and orcs or monsters are down there. But uh, I, I, just, I don't. I don't know if that's the right place to go for anything reliable. Honestly, like because there's obviously very little regulation anywhere on the web, but certainly the dark web. But it seems like that's not the place to go for anything um, on the up and up. You know, that, that just doesn't seem right to me. And why would they hide it down there? That's another, uh, just something that pops in my head. If, you, if, if you're if you just a, a rancher or something and you got a weird thing on game camera, why would you go through all the trouble of getting these special proxies or whatever it takes to get to the dark web to post that sort of thing? And what would you get out of it? Right, exactly. And, and the kind of people that are out there hunting and aren't the kind of people that are sitting on the dark web. The dark web people are the nerds, you know, sitting in some basement or city apartment you know it's not it's not a lot of country folk doing the dark web no i wouldn't think so i wouldn't think so i i think that um uh, the, the place to go i mean well yeah, God, i mean reddit is, is kind of uh almost the same thing in some ways i kind of know what, whatever goes goes you can say whatever you want it doesn't matter um and with all the nonsense coming off of there and the other social medias and stuff i, I can't imagine the dark web would be even more would be more reliable in any way but I don't know. What do I know? I know so little. Ignorance is bliss, and I'm the happiest person I know. All right. All right. Last question, Bobes. You ready for it? I'm ready. Here it comes. This is from Les Holman. My nephew, Grant, is five years old. He is obsessed with Bigfoot. We are going to go looking for Bigfoot once it cools off in Mississippi. I was going to make him a Bigfoot hunting kit. What would be some good items for a five-year-old? I got this. Tape measure... A notebook for taking notes, a notepad, get him some plaster repair so he can do some casting, and then a DNA collection kit. You can get some sterilized tweezers and uh, new envelopes to put your findings in if you find any hairs. Um, or you can order one of the, uh, you know, I think Shelly Covington Montana's kit. I mean, that wouldn't be, I mean, five year old, obviously an adult's going to help him do all this. So they could just probably get one of those kits from her. Yeah, yeah, you probably, but you know, five-year-old too. I mean, I, I something that I, I agree with everything you said because a casting kit they can cast deer prints if they find nothing else. So there's going to be deer prints around. That's going to be a lot of fun for them because five-year-olds are all kinesthetic learners. Every one of these those little guys are kinesthetics. That means they like to do stuff. You know, um, they like to get involved and do activities and participate and do it. So if you get them mixing up plaster and pouring in, they have something to bring back. They're going to be stoked. You get them a notebook so they can take notes and they say, oh, my five-year-old hasn't mastered writing yet. That's okay. The way five-year-olds master writing is by writing whatever they think it is. Even if it's not letters and whatnot, let them write, let them record things and draw pictures and do stuff in their notebook. And then later on, you have them read that back to you. Um, you can get them a book. There are really good children's books on Sasquatches. Um, even the five-year-olds, you can read it to them. The more the more they're involved with books, the more uh, the more chance there is that they're going to be readers later in life. And by you reading to them, that also ensures they're going to be readers later in life. Um, reading to a student, no matter what the age, is just as good as them reading in a lot of ways. Um, so that's what I would say. Plaster. I would say a ruler of some sort because it teaches them the measurement and that's a skill into itself, uh, a, some sort of book that they can learn from and some sort of book that they can write in, like a notebook. And they will be stoked and, um, and in 30 years they might actually thank you um, for that experience because that's what led them into being a biologist later in life or God knows what they're going to do. But that is the way to kindle a lifelong love of nature and uh, documentation and learning in a young child like that. I agree with you too, Cliff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there you have it. There you have it. There's our episode. There's our Q&A episode. I know we talked a lot at the beginning, but we gave you a good, good amount of questions and answers afterwards. And uh, hopefully you, everybody enjoyed listening to the episode as much as we like making it. Yeah, I mean, I love talking to our old friends and learning new stuff, but these ones are pretty, pretty much the funnest ones. Yeah, I really enjoy these. I, I absolutely really enjoy these. So. Well, uh, let, me, let me ask you this, Bill, before we go. Do we have anything that is coming up that you'd like to share? Uh, I don't, I'm not doing anything public, that's for sure. I'm just doing uh, the documentary stuff, just doing that. 
Okay. Well, by the time this airs, the next big event I have going, I'm going to be doing the Bigfoot Rendezvous 22, which is out in Pocatello, Idaho on September 23rd and 24th. Um, as, as of this point, the only speakers I'm aware of, or at least who they have lined up, is uh, Dr. Meldrum will be there. I will be there and Mark Marcel will be there if, as long as uh, that, that is true, as long as that continues to be true. From what I understand, Mark Marcel and I are going to carpool out there. So that's going to be one fun weekend for me. I'm really looking forward to that one. Can't get enough of Mark. Dude, that's, I'm jelly. Uh, well, you know, you can come out too if you want to just come out and enjoy yourself. Um, but if you do want to come, Bobes, I can get you a free ticket. But everybody else, I can't get you free tickets. There's too many of you. Um, but if you want tickets for that event and come to hear Meldrum and me and, uh, and Marcel's talking, um, you go to sasquatchprints.com and you can buy tickets at sasquatchprints.com. And actually, while you're there at sasquatchprints.com, you might as well pick up a Bigfoot and Beyond t-shirt because that's where those things are sold as well. And you can have uh, our t- uh, they, they have hoodies now too. By the way, you can get hoodies, Bigfoot and Beyond hoodies, because winter's coming. Although today it's triple digits here in Portland, and I don't feel like wearing a hoodie. But you know, in October I might. I'm, I'm wearing one right now. Yeah, it's freezing down here. It's foggy on the beach. Oh, I would take that in a second. I can't stand these hot days, man. All right, Bob. So there you go. Another episode is done. Next week, I have no idea what's going on. We'll find out. Hopefully, I'll find out before it. But uh, other than that, Bobes, you want to take us home? Yep. All right, folks. Thanks for listening, tuning in, and welcome to all our new listeners. We appreciate you guys checking us out. And uh, so, till next week, y'all, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 